0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks.
1: Fast food is really a way of life in America. In fact, eating out is a way of life in America, and since 1970, um, there has been a tenfold increase in restaurant sales. For 2012, the National (laughs) Restaurant Association projects $632 billion in sales, and for American families will be spending about one-half of their food budget eating out. How much of that is fast food? Well, fast food is considered to be the quick-service segment of the restaurant industry. It's about one-third. So remember, that's one-third of over $600 billion. Um, And in fact, this is the only segment of the restaurant industry that grew during the recent economic downturn. On any given day, one-third of Americans will eat fast food. And in fact, about 7% of us eat fast food every single day. Who's most at risk? Well, adolescents and young adults are the largest fast food consumers. Adolescents get about 20% of their total daily calories from eating out. Uh, Young adults, meaning between the ages of 18 and 24, get up to 30% of their total calories every day from eating out. And we know that fast food intake increases as they progress from childhood into adolescence. And one reason for that is that, as you know, teenagers have more autonomy around eating on their own. Um, what's the first thing that many kids do when they get their driver's license? They, they go through the drive through um, So it's a rite of passage in the United States. Young men tend to eat the most fast food, and therefore it should be no surprise to you Uh Uh-oh, where's my picture? There she is. It should be no surprise to you then that fast food industry targets young men for their advertising. Um, this was a 2005 commercial from Carl's Jr. Um, featuring um, Paris Hilton. Anybody remember seeing this on the on the hood of the car eating? You don't you don't watch enough TV, clearly. So because you're doing educational things like this. So um, this was Paris Hilton's ad for Carl's Jr. It was very controversial. Um, the Parents TV Council called it soft core porn, and they were told by Carl's Jr. to get a life. In case you doubted for a minute that um, fast food is targeting um, adolescents and especially young adolescent males, here's another one. She'll tell you that size doesn't matter. She's lying. And it's a commercial for um, their superstar with cheese. Poor youth are particularly at risk when it comes to fast food. We know that they have higher rates of obesity, um, and, that, and that cuts across all ethnicity and racial groups. They also have higher fast food intake. They are exposed to fast food uh, more so, and in fact, Fast-food restaurants tend to cluster in poorer neighborhoods. You can find 2.5 fast-food restaurants per square mile in poor restaurants as compared to 1.5 restaurants and more affluent ones. Uh, and in fact, kids who watch more TV eat more fast food and that has been experimentally shown that kids do eat what they see on TV. Um, finally, kids who live in poor neighborhoods have lesser access to healthy alternatives. So why do we really care about fast food? Well, we know now that fast food is an established risk factor for poor health outcomes in adulthood. Um, One notable study was the CARDIA study, a prospective study that was carried out over 15 years, um, started by following young people 18 to 25 years old. And what they found is that eating fast food twice a week or more created an increased risk for obesity and for diabetes, or risk for diabetes in terms of insulin resistance. We also know from several studies that young people who eat a lot of fast food have poor diet quality. They tend to eat a diet that's higher in fat and sodium, more soft drinks, and less fruit and vegetables. But the question at hand today is, is fast food addictive? And then the question that follows that, if fast food were addictive, would we think about it differently in terms of policy and in terms of potentially regulating its availability to young people? So let's talk about food addiction for a minute because it is a highly controversial topic. First, we'll go over just the list for cri- of criteria for substance dependence, and these come from the American Psychi- Psychiatric Association, the Current Diagnostic Manual, which is Edition Four, Edition Five. It's on, is on its way out, and these are going to be changing. So, um, but here's the list as it is. For substance dependence, there are seven criteria. The first is tolerance, meaning that you build up resistance, so to speak, over time. The second is withdrawal, so that if you took away the substance, you would see physical signs of withdrawal. Um, has anyone skipped their morning cup of coffee and had a headache by about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning? That is a known sign of caffeine withdrawal, and it's something that we can, almost all of us, can relate to. By the way, these first two criteria have to be met for a substance to be physiologically or physically addictive. The rest of the criteria that we'll discuss are more psychologically addictive or uh, parameters for psychological addiction. The third one is greater amount or longer use than intended. The fourth is a desire by the individual to cut down or quit. I don't know how many of you um, have friends or relatives who are smokers and will and honestly tell you all the time, I really want to quit smoking. I'm trying to quit smoking. And we know it's very difficult to quit, but the desire is there. Seeking or craving is another criterion for substance dependence, interference with life, and use despite negative consequences. And we'll talk about these a little bit more in detail, but I wanted you to have the list so that you can think about in your head what does a substance have to meet in order to um, in order to uh, be considered um, a substance of dependence? So, what are the problems with classifying food or f- uh, food as addictive or food addiction? The first big problem is that the current evidence, the models of food addiction, are really limited to rodents. And as you know, as attendees of UCSF's mini medical school, um, it's very difficult and not possible to extrapolate experiments done in rodents to humans. So there's a lot more research that needs to be done in this area, although there are labs that are actively uh, investigating food addiction in humans. The second problem is that many people equate food addiction with eating disorders. And really, it seems as though the psychopathology and the presentation of eating disorders is quite different. The third problem is that the pattern of intake may be more problematic than the food itself. And again, we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But just to explain, the models of food addiction require um, a pattern of dieting. So in other words, you have to have a pattern of restriction and then re-access to the food in order to get animals to binge or to overeat. The next problem is that this whole label of food addiction really tends to blame the victim, and this is why people who are proponents of the science, like, um, for example, Kelly Brownell at Yale, are very careful to talk about foods, certain types of foods, as addictive, rather than people as food addicts. Uh, The next problem is that there's currently no definition for food addiction. And finally, food is required for life. And this is perhaps the biggest difference between drugs of dependence or substances of abuse and food, right? Because drugs can be classified as use or no use. You're either a smoker or you quit or you never were a smoker. But food is not something that you can quit. So it's, it's really difficult to define. Let's talk about food intake that is required for life. Well, when we talk about survival eating, we know that survival eating is a very very tightly controlled process. Um, and the pathway that controls this is referred to as the homeostatic pathway. It is centered in the hypothalamus of the brain, which contains the so-called feeding and satiety sig- um, centers. And those are affected by well-known hormones, for example, leptin. There are neurotransmitters, then, that originate in the hypothalamus. An example is neuropeptide Y, but those orchestrate the hunger and satiety cues. So food intake is required for life. It is tightly controlled. Um, Rodents, for example, when they are given access to Uh, Rat chow. Anyone ever had a pet gerbil or a hamster? You remember what that food looks like? It's that grainy, kind of low-fat, high-fiber. It's not delicious. It's just food. Rodents usually will not overeat on that food. They eat until they are satiated, and they maintain a pretty constant body weight. Well, not true if you give them access to chocolate cake. So this is the this is the depressing section because I hate to inform you, chocolate cake it turns out, not required for life. I have at times thought that it was not so. Chocolate cake and highly palatable foods are um, fall into this category of reward eating, or the hedonic pathway. Um, highly palatable foods for some people may be chocolate cake. Usually they are high sugar, high fat foods. Um, Some high-fat, high-salt foods fall into this category, so pizza, for example, and many, many others. Um, But when we talk about reward eating, we really talk about stimulation of the so-called pleasure center of the brain. Um, And this stretches from the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is referred to by many people as the pleasure center for, um, for the brain. And it is dopamine signaling in this area that is the central feature of overlap between drug taking and reward eating. Um, and the thinking is that this pathway evolved to reinforce pleasurable activities that are required for life, so reproduction, for example, and feeding. So what are the similarities between food and, drugs of, um, food and drug reward? Well, first of all, highly palatable foods, again, doesn't matter whether it's fast food, chocolate cake, um, pizza, they trigger release of dopamine and opioids in the nucleus accumbens in that reward center. This reinforces the feeding because it provides a reward. So don't get me wrong, it is rewarding short-term to eat a piece of chocolate cake. Um, And we know this because blocking dopamine receptors, specifically these D2 receptors, um, at least in rats, can decrease the reinforcing effects of alcohol, morphine, cocaine, but also highly palatable food. Um, Now there are researchers, in fact researchers here at UCSF, who have um, attempted to do this in adults, blocking um, dopamine signaling using opioid, and um, opioids using antagonists like naloxone. Um, And in animals, you can precipitate signs of withdrawal. In animal models of addiction, if you block dopamine signaling, they will go into withdrawal, even if they still have access to the drug. Um, In humans, the problem with doing this, although the hope may be that people would reduce their chocolate cake intake, is that human subjects feel really depressed when you block those happy neurotransmitters, those happy chemicals. So it's a difficult experimental model, and we'll see where that research goes. So um, so how are people studying this? Now, this is not, neuroimaging is not my field, but I did want to show you that there's some very real science going on around food addiction using neuroimaging. Um, here's an example of brain images looking at substances abuse. So I wanted to just show you the so-called pleasure center that lights up, so to speak, when drugs of abuse are administered. And it really doesn't matter, as you can see here, what the drug is, whether it's cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol, heroin. You can see that it's really the same area of the brain that is stimulated by drugs of abuse. Well, guess what? We're going to come to this in just a minute and show you that um, highly palatable food stimulates the same area. So, how about in animals? How are people studying food addiction in animals? Well, the criteria that I um, showed you before can, are very difficult to study. For example, desire to quit. It's very difficult to get that from a rat. How badly do you want to quit this methamphetamine habit? Difficult to ask a rodent. So they have a little bit different criteria, and here they are here. The first one is binging. Um, And that's to get at this, um, to show escalation of intake. Um, And so for example, rodents over time, if they're given access to highly palatable food, they will increase their lever presses to get another dose of uh, of that food. The second one is tolerance. So it requires more substance to get the same effect. Um, This has been attributed to down regulation of those dopamine receptors. And I'll show you that um, in a few minutes. But what this amounts to, if you build up tolerance, is that you need more of the substance to get the same effect over time. The third one is withdrawal. So physical signs, such as tremors, for example. Um, In humans and in animals, they try to look at psychological symptoms of withdrawal, including anxiety and depression. And in animals, like I said, this is a difficult one to measure, but they have ways of doing it, for example, in a maze with an open arm. And when animals are feeling anxious, uh, the rodent is less likely to stay in that open area of the maze and tends to hide in a closed area of the maze. And then seeking and craving, um, food seeking is a learned behavior. So example, the example is lever pressing. So anyone who remembers way back to psychology 101 for college, remember animals, rats will press the lever um, for drugs of addiction. They will do the same thing for, uh, for highly palatable food. And then finally, sensitization. So increased response with repeated administration or hyper-responsiveness to a new substance. So if you addict animals, for example, um, to cocaine, you can show a transference of this addiction to methamphetamine. Here's an example of a rat model of addiction. Um, Nicole Avina's lab um, and Bart Hobel's lab really developed these models over time, and Nicole Avina continues to do a lot of the research in this area. And what she has showed is that. If you provide daily intermittent access to sucrose, so that's uh, sugar and rat chow, which is the grainy stuff that I mentioned, um, you have to deprive the rats of food for 12 hours. So remember I said there was a dieting or a restriction phase that is required to see the binging. Um, so they're deprived for 12 hours, then they're given 12-hour access to rodent chow and a 10% sucrose solution starting four hours into the active cycle and what they see with this model is the criteria that I showed you in the previous slide after a certain period of time if you deny access to the sucrose you actually see um, signs of withdrawal so what about in humans What about food addiction in humans? Well, in terms of binging, it's very, very difficult to define. The American Psychiatric Association um, has language in their diagnostic manual about eating a large amount, for example, eating until uncomfortable, eating when not hungry or alone, feeling shame, disgust, depression, guilt, or distress over having eaten too much. Um, In terms of withdrawal, There are studies that look at negative affect or dysphoria, so feeling down when you don't have access to a certain food. Um, Tolerance is uh, studied as increased use over time to achieve a high or to get relief from these symptoms. Craving is very difficult to measure, although there are studies that attempt to do it in humans. Um, the studies on craving are more, aspect on, are more focused on the recovery aspect of craving, so time spent recovering from a binge. Um, And then finally, in terms of sensitization, um, there are studies looking at transference between food and drug use. So there was one interesting study, for example, among uh, methamphetamine addicts who were in rehab, um, looking at a marked increase in fast food intake while um, they were um, not using methamphetamine. We actually wrote a review paper recently to really try to look at this question of fast food specifically, is it addictive? And what we did is we examined three components of fast food. The first one is the nutrient components, the second are individual factors of people who tend to eat a lot of fast food, and then the last one was environmental cues in the fast food restaurant or associated with fast food itself. And so the first comparison that we made between substances of abuse and fast food is the delivery system. So taking cigarettes for an example, tobacco leaves are dried, they're processed and packaged into cigarettes, um, and this processing and packaging um, increases the potency of the primary addictive component, which is nicotine. With fast food, similarly, you start with a handful of staple commodities, so soy, corn, potatoes, wheat, beef, and dairy, and then it's highly processed and highly packaged to deliver menu items that are higher in sugar, fat, calories, in combinations and smaller package than what could ever be achieved in nature. So fast food can be thought of as a delivery system for these nutrients. Well, what do people buy from fast food? Let's talk about not in theory, but really if you look at what customers are purchasing, there was one very good study by Dumanovsky and colleagues out of New York showing that 70% of purchases at the main fast food chains, McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King's, are combination meals or value meals. The average calories was 1,100 calories for these meals, and you can get that for only $5.99. This is compared to people who only bought a single item or were only getting 326 calories. So we created a nutrition facts label, and you can see it here. Um, This is the nutrition facts label for a typical combo meal. So um, there is a market research survey showing that the the most popular menu items of all times at McDonald's are the Big Mac and French fries. They're on the top ten list, and they have been for years. Um, And so we made a nutrition facts label to say, what if you got a combo meal with a Big Mac, large fries, and a large soda? And what you would get from that is uh, 1,360 calories, 58 grams of fat, which is about 90% of your daily allowance, 95 grams of sugar, um, which is more than double to four times as much sugar as you should be having in a day, and 1380 milligrams of sodium, which um, for most of us is up to 92% of what we should be getting in one day. So while we in the past referred to fast food as high-fat food. Really, we need to broaden our thinking because fast food is really a high-fat, high-sugar, high-salt, high-calorie food. Let's talk about the sugar for a minute, though. I showed you that one model of uh, sugar addiction from the Avena Lab, and I wanted to just summarize by saying that all of the features of substance dependence have been shown in rodent models using sugar, either sucrose or glucose. In humans, there's a couple studies showing that carbohydrate-containing drinks can treat dysphoria in people who are self-described carbohydrate cravers. So in these study subjects, they actually feel better. If they're feeling down and they have a carbohydrate-containing drink, they report that it really makes them feel better. Um, And then there's the question of high-fructose corn syrup which you may have heard quite a bit about from our own um, Dr. Robert Lustig here at UCSF, who's done quite a, work, uh, quite a bit of work on that area. Okay, so what about fat? Um, rodents will binge on fat, but they don't seem to show signs of dependence. So if you take away their fat source, they don't seem to go into withdrawal, and they don't seem to build up tolerance over time. But the truth is, if you think about real life, Humans tend to binge on food that are high in fat, but are also high in carbohydrate like pizza or ice cream Um, In fact, if you think of a food that is only high in fat What do you come up with? A stick of butter maybe? You know a bottle of corn oil? Those are not the type of things that people are binging on It's the combination of the carbohydrate and the fat that is salient Um, Okay, what about caffeine? Caffeine is considered a model drug for dependence because in humans, substance dependence to caffeine has been shown in children, in adolescents, and adults. Thirty percent of people who consume caffeine meet the criteria that we talked about for dependence. They meet those seven points. Um, and physiologic addiction has been established in response to caffeine. So I mentioned headache, for example. There are studies actually looking at cerebral blood flow that accounts for headache due to caffeine withdrawal. Um, people who are on caffeine withdrawal have impaired task performance and fatigue. So these are known things, and it's, it's not under argument whether caffeine itself is, um, is addictive because it is considered to be so. Salt, as I said, is another component, very high in fast food. Um, Some people have proposed, at least in rodent models, that salt itself may be addictive. Um, You do see dopamine signaling in animals or reward in response to salt. Um, They have also demonstrated binging on salt and cross-sensitization with amphetamines. But really in humans... um, It's not believed to be addictive, but more of a preference. So um, there is definitely a physiologic threshold. We do need salt to sustain life. Um, But higher levels of salt intake are just thought to be a preference for high salt food. And in fact, you can reset your high salt preference. This has been shown in people who need to reduce their salt intake to manage their blood pressure. For example, it takes about six to eight weeks to get used to those high salt, low salt foods, but people are able to do it. Um, Corkers and Gold have proposed a salt addiction hypothesis, um, but that was based on those subjects that I told you about who were going through withdrawal, um, and they saw significant increases in fast food. Okay, so what I just told you is that the evidence on food addiction right now in animal models is really limited to sugar. Um, animal mo- they, um, labs are able to show sugar addiction in rodents, but in humans it really remains to be seen. There are certainly other components in fast food that seems like encourage people to overeat, particularly fat, high fat, um, and then definitely caffeine. What about individual factors? So let's talk about criteria six for a minute, if anyone remembers. That was interference with life. And criterion seven was use despite negative consequences. So I wanted to read you this quote that came from a paper that documented the experiences of people who are self-described food addicts. And this person said, I eat in spite of horrible knee and leg pain. I'm so uncomfortable after a binge that I can't lay down without regurgitation coming up into my esophagus. I'm miserable. I have embarrassment and fear social situations, but I overeat anyway. So that's an example of a quote that kind of gives us a hint or some at least an anecdote that gives us a hint that people who are um, so-called addicted to food may meet the criteria um, for interference with life and for use despite negative consequences. So what about this paradox, eating when replete or eating when full? Well, I told you before that when it comes to survival eating, there's this complex hormonal system that regulates hunger and satiety when nutritional status is good. That's in healthy weight. But we know that when obesity develops, people actually can develop resistance to these signals. And the most um, common example is insulin resistance. And you may know that insulin resistance is part of this picture of pre-diabetes or that sets the stage for the development of diabetes. Well, it is believed that food addiction um, is described as a system of altered reward. And so the brain actually down-regulates these dopamine receptors so that in, when you get that burst of dopamine, the signal is not received. You need more and more chocolate cake to feel that same happy feeling or that same relief from stress that you felt the first few times you had a piece of chocolate cake after an exam. And I wanted to show you this in terms of neuroimaging. Here are the images that show the burst of dopamine in control subjects, so these are naive subjects, people who have never been addicted um, drug users. And like I said, here's the pleasure center lighting up. Here are the brains of people who are addicted to these substances. And what you can see is a real a blunted effect where you're still getting a dopamine signal in these areas, but it's much less so than in the naive users. So substances of abuse stimulate the pleasure center, but reward is blunted over time with continued use. And this is physiologic evidence of that criterion number two, tolerance. And so as I said, many people think of, um, think of this as a reward deficiency syndrome. And that is what is shown here um, in control subjects or people who are not obese compared to obese individuals. So what you can see here in number one is that if you compare an obese subject to a normal weight person, they actually have fewer dopamine receptors and therefore are experiencing lesser reward. And this is just a control to show that there's no difference in overall glucose metabolism in the brain. So it's not as though brain metabolism looks different overall. It's specific to this dopamine signaling that is, um, that is central to this concept of food addiction. I wanted to also show you that there are studies looking at genetic susceptibility, so this is another brain imaging study. On what it shows here is that this dampened reward is probably really seen in people who are genetically predisposed. So like everything else, if we think of people who are at highest risk for um, diabetes or for cancer, it's people who have a family history, so they probably have a genetic predisposition, and this is true too probably for food addiction. What about stress and dieting? Um, Long-term studies have established a relationship between stress and weight gain. And fast food, of course, positions itself to feed a high-stress clientele, right? If you're too busy to stop for a meal, go through the drive through If you want convenience and you want a quick meal, come to our restaurant. So it's lower priced, it's more convenient, and it certainly is p- appealing to Americans. Um, I should say America on average, which is um, a high-stress, high-paced, fast-paced culture. So what about stress? Stress turns on this HPA axis. And the primary hormone that is associated with a high-stress situation is cortisol, which is supposed to feed back and shut off the stress response. But guess what? It also increases the preference for rewarding food. Um, And so uh, researchers here at UCSF, including Alyssa Eppel, have actually proposed a stress-induced food addiction model whereby people are medicating their stress with food. And this goes back to what I said, where you have a difficult exam or a difficult um, experience at work, and then that leads to wanting the highly palatable food. What about dieting? Remember, criterion four for food for um, um, substance dependence was desire or attempts to cut down or quit. Well, as I showed you, in rodents, intermittent food access is required for addiction. So the animals will not binge on the sugar that's provided unless they've had a period of restriction. So in humans, this is probably true too, that restriction or dieting precedes the binging or precedes the addictive overeating. Um, Food deprivation may be real, so in people who are dieting and really attempting to cut down, or it may be perceived. Um, And what I mean by that is that when you live in an environment where there's food available all the time... You feel like you're foregoing goodies all the time, even when you've had a good meal. So you've just had lunch, and somebody brings donuts to the meeting after lunch. You really don't need a donut, but you feel like, well, I'm not going to have that because I really shouldn't. So you feel deprived even though you just had a full lunch. And that's something we all experience now because we're surrounded by food constantly. We know from studies that dieters are more susceptible to food cues, and they're more likely to overeat under stress. What about – so those were – so let's just sum up for a minute the individual factors we talked about. What individual factors may put people at higher risk to addictive overeating? Um, The first one was obesity, and the potential mechanism there is that as people become obese – they have down regulation of those dopamine receptors and less of a response to highly palatable food. So they need more of that good tasting food to feel that same high or to feel that same happiness or sense of relief. And so escalating intake over time um, increases weight and contributes to the obesity. Um, And then the next one that we talked about was stress. People are probably, it seems from studies, more likely to to overeat when they are under stress. And that may be true for certain individuals, specifically women, and women who tend to be dieters. Okay, let's turn for a minute now to environmental cues because we've talked a little bit about the, um, the, the physiology of the, the individual, and we've talked a little bit about the nutrient composition of the food, but what about the environment that may stimulate addictive overeating? Well, environmental cues we know are required to create addictive patterns. So environmental cues are powerful external stimuli that trigger reward, and it's part of the learning process that habituates the user. So um, this has been shown in studies, for example, people who are... um, who are smokers, who have quit, actually can relapse at the sight of an ashtray. So those visual cues can be very, very powerful at stimulating that addictive or bringing back that addictive behavior. And, in fact, visual cues are probably the most salient cues compared to, um, you know, auditory or um, smells, Rodents, for example, will eat more in a wallpapered cookie cage. These are some very interesting experiments where they have rats in a cage that has a known visual cue, so there's a certain print on the wallpaper, um, and they teach them to eat. It's actually Oreos in that cookie, in the Oreo cookies in that cage. Um, when you take the rats out of that cage and you feed them a full meal of rat food, the pellets, and then you put them back in the cookie cage, even though they are full, they are satiated. They will continue to eat cookies just when they're in that cage because they've made the association with that visual cue. So this is something that's known. Um, you know, in the world of science, uh, we tend to think like this is really interesting finding, but of course. It's probably true that the restaurant industry has known this for time immemorial, right? Because they've put most of their money into visual advertising. Visual advertising um, on television, on, in signs, commercials, and associated with characters like Ronald McDonald. In fact, TV ads are the largest marketing expenditure for fast food. Food is consumed or referred to three to five times every 30 minutes during primetime TV. And as I said before, there are studies to show that kids eat what they see on TV. What about the restaurant itself? Well, fast food restaurants are designed to be fun, familiar, and welcoming environments. And we know from studies that children eat more in socially positive environments. Now, as a nutritionist, the second piece is something that we use or we, um, when we're educating parents of young children about how to get those toddlers to eat their nutritious food at the dinner table. So we talk about creating a positive environment, not a punishing environment, to try to encourage kids. Well. This is something that the Restaurant Association has really mastered in creating a socially positive environment to encourage kids to eat the food uh, playlands, for example, birthday parties, toys in fact, the expenditures on toys from fast food is the second largest next to TV advertising um, in two thousand and six, it amounted to one point two billion in meals with toys to children. Um, $360 million um, specifically for the toys themselves. There are studies by Leanne Birch, um, very interesting series of studies she's done over the last couple of decades. She actually has a feeding laboratory where she check kids into the laboratory, even five-year-old kids to study their eating behavior. And what she has shown is that you can use rewards to increase the liking of neutral foods over just six weeks. So if you give kids something that is a neutral food, I'm trying to think of something that they would neither like or dislike. Maybe it's a a plain kind of a cracker that's not too exciting. If you pair it with a reward over six weeks, they will significantly increase their liking of that food. So again, that probably... Um, that provides some evidence of something that the restaurants have known for a long time, that if you provide that whatever Shrek toy with a Happy Meal, kids will pester their parents to take them to the restaurant and get it. What about menus? How are menus designed in such a way that might increase overeating? Well, menus... Um, contain both familiar and novel items. So on the one hand, familiar foods don't mess with success. McDonald's french fries have been on the menu since 1955 and they are still the number one item. Um, And in fact, comfort foods to a certain extent is a form of learned dependence. Children we know require repeated exposure in order to accept a new food. And there have been studies to show that subjects who have who receive a very bland, like a milkshake with no flavoring, for five days, they initially, when they're on that bland diet, they crave other foods. But when you take the bland liquid away, they begin to crave the bland liquid. So there's something learned about consistency and about um, about foods that we become used to that contribute to our cravings for those foods. And for anyone who has ever, you know, um, gotten a cold and feel like, oh, I wish I had my mom's chicken soup or I wish I had those mashed potatoes that my dad used to make, that is probably a learned association with comfort. On the other hand, restaurants have to keep new items coming in order to keep it interesting. So novel items on menus are a way to keep it interesting. Those are ways to overcome, perhaps overcome tolerance, because we know that the dopamine burst is attenuated over time with repeated exposure, as I showed you in those brain images. So if you can introduce a new item or a new food, you can increase that excitement both psychologically and physiologically. Other methods are intermittent access. Remember the rat model required intermittent access, 12 hours of sugar, 12 hours of restriction. So um, restaurants can create intermittent access by having seasonal items. So the shamrock shake only comes around once a year and people probably buy more of it during that short period of time than they do if it was available all year. What about portions? Portions are a very important external cue that assist with our intake regulation. Um, So there have been interesting studies done by Brian Wansink and colleagues, Probably some of you have seen these um, because they've been reported really widely in the newspaper. He did one experiment with a bottomless bowl of soup. So there was a bowl of soup with a tube underneath that was refilling the bowl, and people ate 73% more soup because they kept thinking they're going to see the bottom of the bowl, and that's when they'll be done, but the bowl was refilling. They didn't know it. So humans really depend on those visual cues, the size of the plate, the depth of the bowl, the height of the glass. We need that to guide our intake. Um, And in fact, he has said, quote, portion size is no respecter of person. In other words, big portions will make people of all ages and people of all weights overeat. By the way, since 1970, fast food sodas have increased by 49 calories and French fries by 68 calories, hamburgers by 97 calories. So there's the portion distortion that's going on in fast food. What about packaging? Remember I told you that the the most commonly ordered meal was a combo meal, that's 1,100 calories. Um, And healthy foods similarly contain, or carry a halo effect. So restaurants, for example, sometimes on a menu may notice there's a heart symbol or a healthy symbol by a menu item. And what studies show is that customers who order a healthier item are more likely to make up for those calories with unhealthy items. So they may get the salad, but they get the fries and the soda to go with it, and then they more than outdid their calorie savings. We also know that customers consistently underestimate their calories, and this is consistent with criterion number three, which is use of more substance than was initially intended. So, Just to sum up this question, is fast food addictive? In our review of the literature, we found evidence to support all seven of these criteria um, as it pertains to fast food. Now, there are some serious limitations. Some of these are only shown in animal models, a few are shown in human models, and there are many, many other limitations. But what we came away with is to say that if any food is addictive, fast food will fit into that category. Now, what if, indeed, and there's a lot more research to be done in this area, what if fast food and similar foods were experimentally proven and eventually considered to be addictive substances? How would that influence our thinking about how we allow children to access these? Well, first of all, when I speak with the medical students about this. Um, Food addiction or not, we know that fast food is a risk factor for obesity and for diabetes. So I always um, teach the medical students, number one, you have to learn to screen and counsel on fast food intake when you're working with pediatric um, populations. You probably should delay the onset in pediatric patients, the same as substances of abuse and the same as TV. The later they get started on the habit, the better. Doctors, I always say, have to learn about other cost-saving options, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but a big reason why many people in America eat at fast food is the price. And so if physicians want to successfully counsel on reducing fast food, they need to know what are other options for eating on a budget. And then finally, I advise the um, physicians to learn how to practice or advise their patients to practice damage control. So if you do go to fast food, what are the healthier options that you can get? What are some ordering techniques, like avoiding the combo meals or getting a, a water? Or if you have to have a soda, considering a diet soda, which is a controversial topic in itself. But what are the policy implications? If fast food were addictive, would we rethink our current reliance on personal responsibility? Would we consider policies that encourage healthier choices? And I wanted to talk um, in the last piece today about an example of nutrition policy that is coming soon. We already have it in California. Um, It's called menu labeling. And so for those of you who have gone to fast food or even Starbucks and other chain restaurants, you've seen it here where you look up at the menu and they have the calories posted by the price. Have people seen that here? Okay. So let's talk for a minute about menu labeling legislation, because this is part of a policy effort in the United States to combat obesity. The goal is to enable individuals to make healthier choices. And in fact, in a survey of customers, 87% of people say, yes, we want this information. The legislation requires chain restaurants to post calories. It started in New York City and other small municipalities. California was the leader. We were the first state to pass this statewide. Um, and recently it was actually passed federally as part of the Affordable Health Care Act. Here's an example of a picture of the nutrition information that was available before menu labeling started. So, if you can't read this, that's the point of a slide, right? You had to go, you had to bring, you know, a microscope with you to the fast food restaurant and try to decipher the information. Here you can see it was kind of stuck behind the door. This is at one of the restaurants where we did a study in Oakland. After menu labeling, the calories are really prominently displayed. Now, I just want to show you again this. I'll show you next so we can zoom in, but just imagine you're standing in line now. Um, These are the combo and the extra value meals that are available, and you can see here's the price with the calories, and this is what it looks like up close. So, 760 calories for the sandwich, but then they give a range for the meal. So, you can see how it very quickly becomes complicated. Remember, I said, 70% of people are getting combo meals. So for most people, they have to decipher what does this mean? 12, 11, 20 to 1360. Depending upon what type of combo you get, your calories are going to be somewhere within that range. So, yes, it is displayed prominently, but the question is: do people really understand that information? Well, the initial studies, the experimental studies, looked promising. It seemed like in the laboratory, if you gave people labeled menus, they would actually change their order. Um, And there was one study before menu labeling was implemented um, in New York, um, done by the New York City Department of Public Health, and customers who reported seeing calorie information purchased 52 calories fewer. This was a very widely um, cited study. And in fact, the governor of New York cited this study often when he was pushing or promoting statewide menu uh, labeling in, in New York. The problem is that this was only at baseline. The menu labels were not available um, widely yet. And these were customers who were biased because they were looking for the nutrition information. So what are the problems with reliance on policies like menu labeling? The first problem is that there's probably no behavior change in, in response to menu labeling, and there are several studies to show that now. Perhaps the largest study of all has been done by Dumanovsky and colleagues. They did a natural experiment in New York. They looked at the number of calories ordered before and after menu labeling was implemented, In 15,000 participants, in 11 chain restaurants, I don't know how much bigger a sample do we need, and what they showed is no difference in calories ordered. Uh, There was a Starbucks study that looked at 100 million register receipts. Um, And this was actually, you have to give credit to Starbucks, they provided these data for the researchers to analyze. This is a group at Stanford. Um, And what they found, and this is probably the best estimate we have of the real effect of menu labeling, a 14.4 calorie decrease from before and after menu labeling. So, If there is an effect, it's likely very small, but there are other problems. The second problem is that menu labeling seems to be missing its target audience. Do you remember who I said? Who's most at risk when we think about fast food? Who eats the most? Teenagers, right, and specifically teenage boys. Well, youth don't use the information. Here's a study that was done. Um, looking at 379 children and adolescents living in low-income communities. Remember I said kids living in poorer areas are the ones who are eating the most fast food. And by the way, these kids, 35% of them, were eating fast food six times per week. of those kids said that they did see the information, but only 9% of them said it impacted their order. So these are the kids really that we care about because these are the kids who are eating the most fast food and are going to have health risks related to it, and they're not using the information. Uh, We also did a study on this, a small study in um, California among 1,500 participants, and I'll just tell you very quickly the upshot of our findings here is that if you compare young people, so age 25 and less, to adults, what we found is that they were less likely to look for the information, less likely to consider the information, and less likely to have that informa- the, the calorie information affect their purchase. So who uses the information? In the study on 15,000 participants, And in the Starbucks study, what they found is that people who use menu labels are more educated, they have higher income, and like you, the audience today, they have more of an interest in nutrition. Well, these are not necessarily the people that are the greatest fast food um, eaters and not necessarily the people who are at highest risk for the health outcomes. The next problem is that there may be unintended consequences of menu labeling. This is an area that has really been understudied but is of concern to people like me who do eating disorders research. Um, This study, the sandwich study, was done by my collaborators at Carnegie Mellon University, Julie Downs, uh, George Lowenstein, and colleagues. And what they did is a study where they offered people a free meal if they would complete a survey. Um, And then they provided an experimental menu. And the menu provided a tip saying you should eat about 2,000 calories per day to maintain health and maintain your weight. When people had a labeled menu that told them how many calories were in the item that they could order and how many calories they were supposed to get per day, there was still no effect on the total calories that they ordered. And there were some unintended consequences. There was that halo effect that I mentioned where people, if they got a low-calorie item, they ordered the higher-calorie side effects. And among dieters, they found, interesting and paradoxically, that dieters were 76% less likely to order the low-calorie options when they were labeled. And the thinking here is that perhaps people who are on diets inflate risk to self-motivate, like, oh, I would never eat that. It has too many calories. Then when they see the actual amount of calories, they think, well, that's actually not so bad. So, What this amounts to is that education, which is what menu labeling strives to provide, is probably not the answer. The final problem, and what I wanted to just spend the last few minutes discussing, is that for many customers, especially the most at-risk youth, price trumps calories. What is the price of fast food? Adolescents in studies list price and convenience as the top reasons that they order fast food. And I told you already that during the recent economic downturn, fast food was the only segment of the restaurant industry that increased its sales. And in fact, in a a survey by Deloitte, customers report going to fast food more often during recent economic times. And when they do go there, they're seeking out more low-price options. In our study among 409 adolescents and young adults, we found that young people who lived in the more affluent neighborhoods were spending more money each time they visited fast food. Those in poorer and urban neighborhoods were getting more calories for every dollar that they spent. And what this could suggest is that kids from poorer neighborhoods are trying to get more for their money when they go out for fast food. So remember that calorie information is posted right next to the price information, and you have a group of kids who are maybe using that price information and foregoing the calories because the price is what matters. So where does that leave us? Well, there are some really good possibilities out there. One that we've been hearing a lot about lately, for example, is the soda tax that was just um, in the news again recently. Um, this It takes the form of an excise tax, about three cents per can. Um, and um, the Obama administration proposed this and did the math on this and, and proposed that it would actually generate $24 billion over four years. The problem with this type of policy is that it must be paired with improved food access. Otherwise, people have been calling this taxing the poor for being poor right if you're a kid who lives in san francisco and some of the poorer neighborhoods maybe there's not a good access or our, our clean drinking fountains in your school and suddenly the price of soda goes up but there's no access to water there's no access to milk that is really not the solution that we're looking for so if you're going to raise the tax on these so-called uh, or sin taxes levy sin taxes you have to make sure that people have options that are healthier. Um, and then um, there was a small study at least done. This was, I believe, at Harvard. They did this like in the hospital cafeteria, and they showed that raising the price of regular soda by 35% decreased purchases by 26%. So there is some indication that if you really tax the heck out of it, people will buy less of it. Um, The other... Um, potential path that seems like it could be really promising is making the default option healthier and these are policies that nudge customers toward a healthier choice while still keeping all the options open so you can still get the double whatever mango burger with cheese um, but if you order something like a combo meal or a happy meal can set um, standards that ensure that those meals come with an option that is by default healthier. Um, An example in San Francisco and in Santa Cruz County was the toy bans. Does anyone remember hearing about the fast food toy bans? This was legislation that required meals that come with toys to meet nutrition standards. And again, the thinking here is that it makes it easier for parents if they take kids to – fast food, and the kid wants that latest toy to say, well, at least I know that that meal meets a certain standard and is uh, nutritionally um, uh, decent for my kid. Um, The problem here is that industry, you may have read up on this, they sidestepped this policy by just charging a nominal fee for the toy. Other ways um, that the default option may become healthier, now circling back to menu labeling, is that if industry is incentivized to make their menu boards look better, they may actually start to order healthier options. Um, And healthier options uh, will make it easier for customers to make good choices. So for example, going back to um, Downs et al. in their sandwich study, those who received menus that had healthier items, they featured healthier items, um, were more likely to order a a low-calorie sandwich because the other double bacon, cheese, whatever, unhealthier items were kind of hidden in the back. You had to look harder to get to those. So in conclusion for this part, menu labeling is an existing federal policy with strong public support and little cost, but it's unlikely to reach adolescents and young adults at at risk. Um, We need policies to enable youth to make healthier choices. And... Again, coming off of our discussion today about food addiction, the upshot was that we don't have an answer on that yet, but we do need to think very seriously about how we are allowing industry to market fast food to young people and how easily accessible, and not just accessible, but how encouraged and how um, a regular part of life in America it has become. So thank you very much, and I'm, I'm glad to take questions. Yes.